Welcome to the program. I'm Jeff Sheckman. We all remember that Al Capone was ultimately busted on tax fraud, even though he had a long, violent, and ugly criminal career. We see it play out in politics sometimes, where someone is charged with one crime that the government is able to prove, while it's really reflective of a longer career of crime. So it is with the story of Linda Taylor. Busted in 1974 for welfare fraud, Taylor had a long history of criminal behavior and is even potentially linked to three suspicious deaths in the 70s and 80s. But it was ultimately her conviction on welfare fraud, which made her the infamous welfare queen, who would ultimately shape our policies and politics from her arrest in 1974, arguably right up to the stage in Miami this past week. To talk about this, I'm joined by Slate's national editor, Josh Levine. He's also host of the sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. His work has appeared in Sports Illustrated, The Atlantic, GQ, and The New York Times Sports Magazine. It is my pleasure to welcome Josh Levine here to talk about The Queen, the forgotten life behind an American myth. Josh Levine, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. Tell us who Linda Taylor was. So the Linda Taylor that the public came to know was a woman who was reputed to be the biggest welfare cheat of all time. She was touted in that manner by the Chicago Tribune, which publicized her story in 1974, and by Ronald Reagan when he ran for president for the first time in 1976. He called her a woman in Chicago and said she used 80 different names to steal government money, and he said that she was getting $150,000 a year tax-free in stolen government checks. So that was the Linda Taylor that the public knew and understood. And the real Linda Taylor certainly was a welfare cheat, but that was only a small part of the crime that she was involved in. Yeah, so you know what I came to understand was that she was somebody who was villainized for the least of her crimes, that she was someone who was accused credibly of kidnapping and of homicide. She was not ever, um, you know, indicted or much less convicted of those offenses. And so, uh, you know, that to me was extremely telling that you have somebody who becomes this national figure, this public enemy, this villain, and these you know, accusations against her were actually known at the time that she was made into this villain, and they just weren't assimilated into her story, and nobody seemed to care. Even though the authorities knew about them and the public knew about some of them, to what extent were they provable? To what extent could she have been prosecuted for some of these other things if uh, the authorities had wanted to? That's a tough question to answer for a couple of different reasons. So, for instance, she's arrested for kidnapping in 1967. I have a first-person account of this incident in my book, in addition to other kidnapping incidents. um, You know, it seems fairly clear to me that she perpetrated this crime based on uh, police reports, based on the first-person, you know, interviews that I did, and yet... She wasn't ever indicted, and the records that would indicate why a charge, the charge was dropped have been lost. The people that made that charging decision have since um, passed away. And so there's some kind of uncertainty there. With the homicide charge in 1975, I think we can be a little bit more certain. This was a case 
with a woman named Patricia Parks, who Taylor moves in with, um, who Taylor um, convinces to sign over uh, her estate. She takes possession of, of her house and her property. Um, Parks gets sicker and sicker over the months, and eventually she dies, and she's found to have died of a barbiturate overdose. The prosecutor who ends up prosecuting Taylor for welfare fraud told me that he believed that Taylor killed this woman. Patricia Parks' family believed that Taylor um, you know, killed Patricia, and yet the prosecutor ultimately decided he didn't have enough evidence to get a conviction. And so this is a choice that was made, a choice to prioritize the welfare fraud over the alleged homicide. Talk a little bit about Linda Taylor with respect to race. She was very uh, fluid in that regard. So one of the first stories that was written about her in 1974 after her welfare fraud was publicized talked about how she used race in a kind of deceptive manner in the same way that she would use different names. She would present herself as being black or white or Latina or Asian, depending on who her audience was and what she wanted to portray. She um, presented herself or proclaimed herself to be black when she went on trial for welfare fraud in the mid-1970s. What I was able to deduce in my reporting was that she was mixed race, that she was born in the 1920s in the Deep South, and she had essentially been put in this position where in order for her to kind of live in in that world, in that segregated and deeply racist world, she had to pass as white. She had to present herself as white, and I found numerous instances in which she would do that. And so this notion that she was using race to commit crimes and that it was part of her scam and part of her con was actually far more complicated. Talk a little bit about the context of the time, attitudes about welfare, and where the political climate was back in the mid-'70s when she was busted on these welfare charges and how the country saw the issue of welfare at the time. Sure. Welfare was extraordinarily racialized in that moment. In the late 1960s, there had been a movement, the welfare rights movement, which was primarily led by black women with the idea that um, women of color, black and Latina primarily, had been denied benefits that should they should have been entitled to statutorily. And that movement was successful, kind of in concert with the broader civil rights movement and also with um, various Supreme Court rulings. Um, and so in the 70s, folks who had previously been denied these benefits were getting them in increasing numbers. And what Ronald Reagan and other politicians did at that point was describe this as a crisis that, whereas maybe previously the crisis was seen as poverty, the fact that there are a lot of poor people in America, now the the crisis had shifted and the problem was poor people themselves, people being on benefits that allegedly didn't deserve them. Reagan, when he was governor of 
California described welfare as a cancer eating at our vitals. And as governor of California, he succeeded in passing um, welfare reforms that made it much more difficult to get benefits. And so when he started running for president um, in 1976, he was this insurgent candidate running against an incumbent in his own party, Gerald Ford. And so he wanted to point to um, a past success, something that he could brand as a success, so he would be seen as a serious contender. And what he pointed to was welfare. And so he could say, look at what I did in California. And then also in invoking this idea of welfare cheats, people like this woman in Chicago, Linda Taylor, he could signal to his base, his, his likely voters, um, that this was the problem that was bedeviling taxpayers, was bedeviling America. And when you would talk about a woman in Chicago, a welfare cheat, at that time, you know, the imagined recipient there is a black woman. And the phrase welfare queen, where did that come from? Was that Reagan's construction or was it something somebody else came up with? How did that come about? I was able to find a couple of references to it before Linda Taylor, but very scattered um, and, and not very numerous. Um, where it really begins to take root is in October 1974, when the Chicago Tribune attaches that phrase, that nickname, to Linda Taylor specifically. And the Tribune ends up writing dozens upon dozens of stories that call Taylor the welfare queen. And other media organizations um, take that and run with it. And the idea there um, is that she's somebody who's allegedly getting rich off of welfare. Um, that's the kind of the, the queen part of it, that she's driving a Cadillac and that she has fur coats. But I think there's, it's also important to note, you know, the idea of royalty is that you have people taking care of you and that they're kind of servicing your every need. And so this is the other big idea and, and stereotype, the, the vicious kind of uh, stereotype here is that people on welfare are lazy and that, you know, the hardworking American taxpayer is catering to their every need, paying for their, you know, Cadillacs and fur coats and what have you. This also played into a, a, a pretty consistent habit that Reagan had. You talk about of, of sort of caricaturing people and trying to bring things down to their simplest form. Talk about that. Reagan was a performer, and for him, during a campaign and also when he was in office, connecting with people was of primary importance to him. And the way that he did that primarily was through rhetoric and through anecdote and storytelling. And for him, the tailored story was... Um, very effective. You know, there's audio that I found during the 76 campaign of him telling this and saying she uses 80 names and she has $150,000 in tax-free income in a single year. And when he finishes his, um, his, his story, you can hear the crowd gasp. And he internalized that and he kept saying it because it worked. 
he was somebody who would take feedback from an audience and he would, you know, keep using the material that resonated most with people. And it didn't necessarily matter <laughs> if it wasn't, um, you know, 100% accurate. But Reagan took stuff from media, took stuff from newspapers, and everything that he said had been reported before, and there were errors in the original reporting. It wasn't like Reagan just made this up out of thin air, but it also wasn't like Reagan was running a robust <laughs> fact-checking operation or acknowledged that this story wasn't representative of anything. He made it seem like this was typical and this was something that was happening everywhere. How was Linda Taylor seen in the black community? She did interviews with the Chicago Defender, um, the black newspaper in Chicago. Um, she never did with the Tribune and really didn't speak publicly much at all, except for in those interviews with the Defender. And the Defender gave her uh, an audience, and what she chose to do with it was to talk about how she was being villainized and victimized and that she had done nothing wrong. There were also writers for the Defender who, during her trial, they didn't defend her. They didn't try to claim that she hadn't done what she was accused of doing. You know, she was on trial for stealing $9,000 in, in welfare money, not the $150,000 uh, that, that Reagan had, had said. But they didn't try to say that she was innocent. They didn't try to say she was a great person. They did try to make the argument that her case was being used um, in a really pernicious and negative way, that it was being used to stereotype poor people, being used to stereotype the black community. Um, that didn't necessarily mean that Taylor herself was somebody who was held up as a hero, but what it did mean was that uh, I think there were a lot of folks who were aware at the time that she was, you know, somebody who was, um, you know, whose, whose story was being caricatured and was, was being, you know, uh, used to cast a negative light on folks who didn't deserve it. She went to prison and, and was pretty much forgotten after that, and yet the whole trope of the welfare queen lived on long after her and long after Reagan. Talk about what you found about it that was so effective that allowed it to go on for so long? Yeah, one of the reasons that I wanted to do this book was that there was this fascinating um, kind of uh, duality going on here where you have this human being who the image of the welfare queen is created in her image and you have that image that carries on and the stereotype that carries on while the real person is just totally forgotten. And not only is she not written about after she goes in prison and gets out of prison, it's like she's erased from history or collective memory. You have people talking about her, writing about her, incredible mainstream news organizations who say that she never existed, that she was just a total um, fiction. And so, you know, as far as why the conceit of the welfare queen carries on and is so powerful, I think just this idea of the undeserving poor, that people are getting stuff that they don't deserve, 
far predated Linda Taylor. It's something that is, you know, you can find examples of it throughout history and not just American history. Um, I think folks are always um, susceptible or a certain segment of society is susceptible to this idea that they're, you know, whether it's your neighbors or, or, you know, people from a specific group are undeserving and that, you know, the real kind of hardworking people are, you know, not supported in the way that they should be. And so Taylor comes along at this moment in time when her individual story really resonates in that way, but there are other anecdotes that resonated before her and after her as well. And the fact that that it still gets talked about today, the fact that that people still remember it today as vividly as they do is is quite remarkable. It is, yeah, and I think it's a testament to the power of an individual story, particularly one as kind of outrageous as Taylor's was. And it's, I think, a warning to everyone in the in the public but also to journalists in particular that we need to be careful about how we use these stories and the importance of context and um, you know getting at the truth what's behind these individual stories both in terms of the truth of, of who you know people are but also the kind of greater narrative truth about is this representative what are kind of the population level facts and, and truths here? And is it responsible to be elevating a particular story if you uh, allied that context? And does Taylor have any family that's still around that you were able to talk to that, that was able to, to look at this from uh, a more contemporary perspective? Her, she has family, um, the relative that I spent the most time speaking with was her son, Johnny, who spoke more kind of directly and personally about her and his experience with her rather than about the trope. For him, the thing that was the most, that had the most profound effect on his life was the treatment that he received at her hands, the abuse that, um, you know, she perpetrated against him, the fact that she abandoned him uh, on a recurrent basis. And so the larger societal issues that are in play, I think, were not, when he thought about his mother and her life, were not something that was kind of top of mind for him. It was more about the, the personal, at times, deeply hurtful life experience that he'd had. The three murders, the three cases that were, that you talk about that were suspicious, have they been reopened? Have they ever been solved? What What is the status of those? None of them have been reopened. The first one that I mentioned, the Patricia Parks case, um, was actually looked into at the time. And as I said, there was a, a decision was made that there wasn't enough evidence to prosecute and that decision has never been revisited or or looked at. The other two actually weren't really looked at at the time as potential homicides, but I think in retrospect perhaps should have been. In one case, the man that she was married to at the time 
was killed by an, another man, a man that Taylor claimed was her father, who was not in fact her father. And then Taylor proceeded to collect uh, multiple life insurance settlements after this man's death. And then in another case, a woman who Taylor again fraudulently claimed was her mother um, died under suspicious circumstances, and Taylor then collected, again, multiple life insurance payouts and also began to steal this woman's pension checks. Um, not looked into at the time, not looked into since, as far as I, as I know. And finally, what is this story and, and, and the longevity of this trope? What does it tell you about the country and our attitudes and the way certain things haven't changed in all of these years? I think you can see a lot of the same tropes at play in the current political rhetoric around undocumented immigrants, especially the rhetoric about immigrants and crime, when if you look at a population level, all the kind of best numbers that we have indicate that immigrants commit fewer crimes than non-immigrants, and yet these individual stories of um, you know, criminal behavior get used and distorted to tell a really misleading story. And it's a story that seems true to a lot of people. Um, and it's one that's not only, uh, you know, it's, it's used in a very expansive way to explain all sorts of problems that are going on in America that we can, you know, allegedly attribute to immigrants, um, which is it's, it's vicious, it's untrue, it's unfair, and yet um, it's, you know, an easy target. Um, vulnerable people, people who don't typically have a platform to, to speak out or don't have as big of a platform as, as politicians do. And so, you know, again, it just shows that we need to be vigilant as consumers of, of media and consumers of political rhetoric about what that rhetoric is actually doing and whether it's speaking to a deeper truth. And we'll have to be vigilant about that for as long as humanity exists, I think. Josh Levine, the book is The Queen, The Forgotten Life Behind an American Myth. Josh, I thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed the conversation. Thank you.